I'm Annie Gunner-Logan. I'm the Chief Executive of the Coalition of Care and Support Providers in Scotland. Uh, and we bring together all of the third sector or voluntary sector support providers in social care in Scotland. And I'm Sandy Cameron. And in a past life, I was a Director of Social Work for 20 years in Scottish local authorities. And uh, I now chair uh, a number of social care organisations uh, in the third sector. Uh, so I've been involved in this for about 50 years now. Uh, and I have to say, this is the most dramatic change to the way that we work that in that time I've had experience of. And I'm sure the same is true for you, Annie. Yes, I think so. It's um, it's one of those moments in history, isn't it, really? And and, and social care, we kind of find ourselves um, absolutely in the eye of the storm, as it were. Um, obviously, there are some really, really big challenges around that, but I think we're also learning a lot as well uh, about how we can manage and organise and deliver social care in the future. Yes, I think there are a lot of things that we're now of necessity having to do very quickly within the past few weeks that we'll reflect on and think, well, maybe this is a better way of doing things. And certainly what has been striking is how we have been able to solve some problems very quickly, despite the difficulties that have been, and there were always going to be difficulties. But I think from my point of view, what's happened is that this has, I think, increased awareness of how big and how important the social care sector is in terms of the care of a whole range of people in our population. Yes, and I think um, some other things are coming to more public awareness as well, perhaps, uh, that, uh, than there were before. Um, certainly, there has always been a little bit uh, of a sense that social care is in some ways the sort of junior partner, if you like, <laughs> in yeah. health and social care. And I think we're all realising that that's not quite right. Um, at, the, at this point, we're coming to that realisation quite quickly, I think. Um, and I also think that it's not necessarily uh, obvious to everybody um, the way in which social care is organised and the way in which, in effect, it operates as a market uh, where there are hundreds of different providers and hundreds of different employers. Um, not just the direct delivery by uh, local authorities and health and social care partnerships. In fact, that's the minority. It's only about 20% of social care is delivered directly by public bodies. Um, and I think during the, the process of health and social care integration in Scotland, that people are becoming more aware of that. But now I think people have really, really caught up. Um, and we are seeing some of the challenges of that coming out in this crisis in, in a way that we might not have done previously, I think. Yes, I think that what I hope people will begin to grasp is the importance of sustaining that huge diversity of organisations because if we don't have them, uh, then our society frankly can't work uh, and the health service will be overwhelmed uh, with demand. I think the other thing that strikes me is at the present time, the focus understandably tends to be on care homes for older people. And of course there are concerns there. But equally, we shouldn't be surprised that they are very badly hit because of the nature of their residents. But the sector is much wider than that. We, I chair an organisation that looks after people with severe disabilities. Uh, I chair an organisation that looks after people who have got uh, issues with drug misuse and offending, uh, who are veterans coming out of the services with problems. Uh, and I'm also involved in a 
company which provides residential childcare and fostering services. So there's a big diversity, all of which have got their own challenges with COVID-19 uh, to deal with. Yes, I agree with that. Um, I mean, the main focus right now is on older people's care homes, and that's quite right because that's where some of the really major risks are emerging. Um, but let's not forget that there are other social care settings where communal living is a feature. So, you know, for younger disabled people, for people with severe um, cognitive impairment, uh, children's homes, for example, um, you know, there, there are lots of places where people live together in care settings. Um, and whilst the focus is on care homes for older people because of particular risks and vulnerabilities there, some of the same issues around, you know, PPE and testing and the importance of good guidance kind of covers, covers right, all, all of those services. Um, and then, particularly for our membership, I think, there is uh, the question of how we manage visiting services that people receive in their own homes. Yes. Um, so home care, supported living, housing support, support for children and families at risk. Now, they're not the same risks as care homes where many people are all gathered together, but there are similar risks in the sense that these are the same workforce that is visiting several people uh, yeah. in, over the course of a day in their own home so they're kind of going from one person to to another um and that raises some of the same issues um around ppe and testing and so on um you know and then there are kind of parts of the parts of the system that we probably you know wouldn't be that visible i think a lot of the time like social workers carrying out child protection visits you know you actually have to go into somebody's home to do that uh, a lot of the time um, same for all kinds of visiting support and personal care that disabled people rely on and as you say sandy you know there's third sector organizations involving uh, involved in supporting people who are homeless who come out of prison who have severe mental health problems i mean it's absolutely huge uh, the diversity of services in social care that are pretty much alive to this issue now and really trying to manage it in the best way that they can. And, I mean, I think what we've had to do is stop quite a lot of the face-to-face -face services, but as you say, there are services that you can't do that and you can't keep vulnerable children safe unless you actually get through the door. So the people who are doing that, the social workers, need to a, have the right equipment and need to have the discretion and the authority to take their decisions about how best to handle the situation. Uh, and, and that, I think, is happening around the country. But equally, interestingly, we are learning that we can support and sustain contact with people uh, in other ways. So one of the issues that we're finding with women coming out of prison, for instance, is that the mentoring services are making a great deal of use of telephone contact. Uh, and women are, in effect, looking for support 24 hours a day. Uh, in Scotland, we are about to have quite a large release of people out of prisons to relieve that pressure. Uh, and SACRO, an organisation I chair, will be supporting them uh, through one of our projects with other partners called Shine. And one of the things we're doing is making sure that every woman who comes out of prison has got a phone uh, so that they can be supported and find their way back into the community. So that there are new ways that we're managing to find to su support people. Uh, but they don't all replace the need for face-to-face -face contact. 
Well, face-to-face -face contact is, is very important uh, when you think of the, uh, the growing research that we, where we know about the risks of social isolation for people. So um, obviously there are some services where you, you just have to show up. I mean, you know, if you're providing intimate personal care to people, you know, you're not going to do that over the phone or over the video. Um, but even where there is visiting support without intimate personal care, it's that kind of human contact that is really, really valuable. So I think there are a lot of organizations now being very creative about how they approach that um, and you know in the same way that you know GPs are really kind of now beginning to fast stream the video consultations you've got uh, you know in, in our world you've got a lot of mental health organizations who are working digitally who are working on the phone um, who are finding ways to keep that essential contact with people and all the more important really when things like day centers really are kind of just not happening anymore again because of the kind of congregational uh, nature of the service there's just too much risk there so there's a lot of creativity going on there and, and I think you know in some ways we're, we're all saying this now aren't we that there will be a new normal uh, yeah. when we come out the other side of this um, and I think that might be one yeah. of the ways in which we approach the new normal is that we'll just be doing things very differently where it has been shown that it can work and it, it can be just as effective. Yes, I think one of the things that I've been in discussion over the past couple of days with various organisations about is the need to be reflecting on how we are currently doing things with a view to saying what's worked here and should we continue to do that in the new normal as you describe it and equally what are the things that have not worked very well uh, and without any doubt there will be those things that uh, have had unfortunate consequences but potentially we didn't have any choice in the, the current situation. One of my concerns is because we are shutting down or we have shut down day services, day centres, is to be sure that we maintain contact with people and their families to be sure that they are being supported. And I can think of at least one example of a young person where we have reopened a facility to provide relief for the family because they simply weren't coping. Uh, so I think being fleet of foot and being prepared to uh, change what we're doing is important if we're really to sustain some very vulnerable people uh, in their own homes. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So the, the, the kind of models of service delivery are going to change. But I think also the way we structure service delivery and the way we structure the organisation of planning and delivering social care is also seeing quite a lot of changes that I think some of us would quite like to keep after yeah. this you know it's, it's happening in the emergency but there are some things that we really really want to hang on to i mean when, when you think of the social care proposition it's actually quite simple you know here are some people who uh who need some support to carry on living their daily lives and, and acting as uh, as citizens uh over here and then over the other side there are some people who want to help them do that <laughs> right so it's pretty pretty basic okay um and on top of that we have created this kind of byzantine system um, of uh, legislative and regulatory uh, architecture, mm -hmm. some of which is now being dismantled and we are now kind of thinking, well, did we, did we actually need it? Um, I mean, one, one good example of that would be, uh, I mean, Sandy, you know very well that I've been talking for years and years about, you know, how unnecessary competition and tendering is in social care. Um, and what we're finding now is because people are way, way too busy to do any of that now because of the crisis, then suddenly it doesn't become necessary anymore. And I kind of think, well, if it's not necessary now, 
maybe it won't be necessary afterwards. Um, I mean, we're seeing things like PVG checks speeded up beyond all our imagining. Uh, we never thought this would be possible in the past, uh, and suddenly it is. Um, so there are all kinds of things that are happening here that I think we could learn from. And one of the most important for me is, is the recognition of the importance of this workforce um, and the need to reward them appropriately. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. And the, the workforce in social care, certainly in my experience, uh, have been absolutely committed to being at their work as far as they can. Uh, we've had real commitment uh, from people in some very difficult situations. Uh, but I think uh, that also is an indicator of employers doing a lot to be sure that they communicate with staff uh, and that we are hearing their issues and looking to respond to them. Of course, there have been difficult issues and you've been very heavily involved in them in the past few weeks trying to sort out guidance and PPE and what have you. As that begins to settle down, as I think it is, uh, then it's time, as you say, to look at saying, well, we've been able to solve these problems very quickly. My goodness, we've cleared a lot of hospital beds in a very short period of time. Uh, yeah. How has that happened? We need to look, of course, at have people suffered as a result of that? But equally, what has it been that's enabled us to cut through some of the bureaucracy that often goes around it or the difficulties? And I think over the past few decades, to be honest, what we've done is we've had a tendency to put structural solutions into perceived problems as opposed to behavioural solutions. The behavioural solution being, we can sort this, let's just do it. Uh, and I think of necessity that's had to happen in the past uh, four or five weeks, but there's some significant benefit, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I mean, my organisation was initially very much focused on policy and legislative change. You know, if, if only the law would say the right thing and if only the guidance would say the right thing and if only we got the right wording and the right policy, everything would be all right. Well, you know, guess what? We did all of that. And actually, it didn't make a huge difference because, as you say, Sandy, it's all about kind of attitudes and, and behaviours and approaches and culture. Um, and we're finding now that, you know, um, was it? I think it was Warren Buffett, wasn't it, who said... Uh, I said, it's only when the tide goes out that you find out who's been swimming naked. <laughs> um, and you find that where employers in social care have been investing in their workforce, where they have been communicating appropriately, where they have been adopting fair work principles and so on, then actually this is that they are now more resilient. Um, and I think that's a really good learning point for all of us. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the uh, one of the challenges we've got is is um, in social care, given that it has been kind of fairly undervalued and, and under resourced in the third sector is we hope that we will still be here after this crisis in order to um, in order to do all of this learning, um, because the sustainability of organizations through this, I think, is going to be uh, it, it quite, quite a challenge. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that is a, a very serious concern. We know that the economic situation is going to be extremely difficult. Yeah. But equally, we know now more widely of the importance of these social care services working alongside colleagues in the health service and, and other sectors. And if they're not there, then we need to be really worried about what's going to happen to many people in our communities. So this is a big challenge for us as citizens and as government, uh, both central and local government, about how do we make sure that these services continue to be there and viable. And I think um, I think it's kind of underpinning or, or indeed overriding all of that 
is uh, what we are learning about the people who rely on social care and support. Um, because these are, by and large, the people about whom a discussion is being had in some quarters about whether their lives are actually worth saving, um, you know, and people who are being asked to look at, you know, DNR certification just now out of the blue has never happened before. Um, and some of those are younger disabled adults, you know, some of those are older people, some of those are people with significant impairments. Um, and I think it has actually come as quite a shock to uh, to some of us, you know, the extent to which there is sort of uh, assumptions being made about the quality of their lives. Um, uh, and these are precisely the people who are the concern of social care organisations. You know, that's 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 where we are. Our, our entire focus is around those people. So to get their visibility in all of this, I think, is uh, is really, really critical, not just the visibility of the organisations that support them. Yes, I think those of us who are involved in this need to be very alert to that issue and to be very willing to fight the corner of people. I yeah. worry when I hear, albeit that it hasn't actually come to fruition as yet, as far as I can see, but the potential for whole categories of people to be excluded from going to a hospital because the underlying bit of that is worryingly almost as if they're not worth it. And that's a terrible yeah. situation. Now, I don't think we've actually seen that, perhaps because the most severe pressure has not been on ICU and, and all the rest that, that it might have been. But nonetheless, that thinking is worrying as opposed to understanding the very real problems for people who get this, this illness. And one of my concerns, working with people with severe disabilities uh, who may have very significant communication problems, is that they become ill, an ambulance is called, no one's allowed to go with them, they're taken to hospital, nobody can communicate with them. How terrifying must that be for people? Uh, now we've tried to make sure that all of our uh, service users, all of our customers have got their uh, health passports with them that tell about that. But there is an issue in this now that we need to be thoughtful about what the impact on people with learning disabilities or communication problems uh, of any sort uh, uh, when they have to go to hospital in these very dire circumstances. Yeah, and I think I think um, some of these problems have been around for a while, yes. uh, uh, and and we are finding now that they are being amplified very very significantly and rapidly. So again, there's uh, there's um, you know I, I find myself talking with my colleagues a lot about you know the recovery. Yeah. <laughs> When we recover from this and the learning that we're going to take from it and and certainly the kinds of issues you've just been raising there would 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 be kind of fairly close to the top of the list i would think yes because the, as you say these are not new problems but they are thrown into stark relief in this uh because of the urgency of the situation <clears throat> and the, the problem also is that the way that people are responded to varies quite widely across the, the country, varies within health authority areas uh, in terms of whether carers are allowed to go, whether local authorities will fund that. But mm. we need to be thoughtful about what the hospitalisation in these very serious circumstances is uh, in terms of the experience of people who will find it difficult to understand what's happening to them. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, in that context, I think it's kind of important to revisit some of what, you know, what we've already said in this conversation about the workforce. 
um, because I, I don't I don't necessarily buy into the narrative that says social care is in crisis. You know, it's close to collapse. Uh, everybody's going to leave and go and work for Tesco. I mean, we, we know that there are some there are big issues here, and we know certainly that the reward uh, that the financial reward and the terms and conditions that social care workers receive is is not as a good as good as it should be. But I think we have to acknowledge that we've got two hundred thousand people working uh, in, in social care and the vast majority of them absolutely love their job. You know, they are, they, they are, they are rising to the occasion. Um, this is what they have trained for. Um, I think we can feel very proud of them and what they are doing. Um, and, and when we get to the end of it, we need to address some of the, some of the challenges we've had in relation to how we value them. Yes, I think, I think that's uh, been one of the things that has been thrown up is how important a job it is that people who across the board are not very well paid uh, do. So we need to be looking at how that can be enhanced. We certainly need to look at how their training can be enhanced. And through this, we need to be sure that they feel confident that they have got access to the right guidance in understandable forms, that it doesn't get changed uh, every other day. Uh, and that they've got access to the equipment that they need to do their job safely. Uh, so that, that's been a bit of a struggle in these early weeks. Um, but notwithstanding that, everyone that I hear of has stuck with it uh, and done their very best to support the people that they work with. Well, at least of all because they like them and they care for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just just a note on the guidance. You know, you're absolutely right. It, it's not been... Uh, it's not been plain sailing these last few weeks really it's been a little bit bumpy um you know with different versions of uh, of guidance coming out and then it changing again and I, and that kind of injects um an element of instability and uncertainty yes. uh, for the workforce which is really really unhelpful because people if if we if we're going to ask people to put themselves at risk which is in effect what we're doing here then we need to be pretty solid in our support for them um, so I think that's starting to improve now, uh, but you know, I, it seems to me that there has been kind of quite a lot of anxiety around that, and, and no wonder because this is this is we've always said this is life changing work, haven't we, yeah, Sandra? Really? Absolutely, and, you know, and, and at the moment, you know, that's kind of life risking work as well. So, uh, and I don't think we ever had that appreciation in quite such a way before. No, I think I think people who work in social work and social care have often work in unrecognised dangerous situations, but this is very different in terms of people just going to their work and running the risk that they could end up losing their life, uh, yeah. but they're willing to keep on doing that. Uh, and I think we need to um, be valuing uh, what that commitment has, uh, has been. I do worry that the, and almost inevitably, the way that the media works is that they look for a story and there is a bit of a worrying, I think, undertone to the, cons the concern about people dying in care homes for older people as if there was something wrong there, uh, as opposed to this is the almost inevitable outcome of the extremely difficult job that people in the care sector are doing to try and uh, keep those homes going. But infection will spread. Uh, infections do spread and they always have spread in, in care homes, not least of all when you've got people with dementia uh, who it's very difficult to keep uh, socially isolated. 
Well, I mean, you know, infections, infection also spreads on cruise ships, but you don't yeah. see those people being crucified on the front page of tabloid, do you? Oh. Um, you know, and I, th I think there is, a, um, I think there's a degree of irresponsibility actually at the moment in the commentary about this. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a desire to kind of point the finger um, and to blame uh, people for, for this, which is absolutely inappropriate, um, especially at this time, because people are already um, anxious about going to their work and, and, you know, to ramp that up even further when they read stories, um, you know, in the papers about this. I just think that's, it's wholly unacceptable. And I do, I do wish there was uh, a bit more kind of um, challenging of that, shall we say. I think if you are working in a care home where there is infection and you are taking a risk yourself going into work, but you're doing that, you're coping with substantial numbers of people that you become quite close to with because you work with them day in and day out who are dying. That's difficult enough without then uh, having in the media reports an implication that maybe something is being done badly or wrongly. Uh, as opposed to people doing their very best to keep people uh, well and alive in these units. Well, and some, something really good that's that's coming out of this is that that's been picked up pretty pretty quickly, and it's been picked up at the right levels. And there's now quite a, a pretty strong program of support for um, mental health and well-being amongst yeah. care workers. Yeah. Uh, and that's being led by the Minister for Mental Health, and it's quite high priority yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm really pleased to see that because again you know like I was saying before if, if you can't be rock solid behind your workforce at a time like this then the whole thing's going to fall apart. I mean I, I think there are there are other as yet unthought through challenges ahead of us when we begin to come out of it. One of the remarkable things that's happened is we've managed to get people off the streets who are homeless into yeah. hotel beds but there's going to come a day where the issue is going to be are we then going to say to them well you'll need to get out of this hotel because it's going back into business and you'll need to go back to sleeping in the sheets and that doesn't seem to me to be uh, a good solution uh, if we've managed to build uh, huge new hospital facilities in a matter of days then surely we can come up with some solutions uh, other than sleeping in shop doorways uh, on sheets for the people who uh, we've managed to protect at short notice. Yeah, well, it goes back to what I was saying before about the value we place both on social care and on the people who are supported by social care. Absolutely. Uh, and, and for me, that is kind of top of, top of the list for some serious review when yeah. this is done. Yeah, and hopefully there, there, there will be that. Uh, so as you say, this has been life-changing. I think it's been life-changing in a very, very short period of time. And whilst there's been a lot and of life changing for me, and whilst there's been awful things have happened, I think there will be good things come out of it at the end of the day if we sustain that commitment and say let's not forget uh, the lessons that we've learned. So let's hope together and with our colleagues in the the medical field and the health service that we can solve some of those problems that have been structural that we found difficult to deal with by realizing that when it comes to the country, we can make a real difference. Yep, and uh, you know, some, some of us have been working for a while on the principle of collaboration rather than competition. Yeah. Uh, you know, multiple agencies rather than specific organizational allegiances. And if ever there was a time to kind of just shrug all of that off and let it go, this is it. <laughs>
Yeah, I, I hope that we will have learned that competition is not the way to improve things, uh, certainly in this sector. But uh, by working together and behaving in ways that are problem solving, then that's what improves things. I think that you should have the final word on that, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have probably run out of our time, Annie. It's been good to talk. Yep, you too.